Hey there, and welcome back to The Fuse Show. I'm one of your co-hosts, David Tran, and today I'm joined by Andy Jeffries of Sevo. Andy is a CTO and co-founder of Sevo, the first cloud-native service provider powered only by Kubernetes. Thanks for joining us on the show, Andy. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate you taking the time. So something I always find really cool to find is when people in the founder space, especially the technical founder space, have a lot of passions outside of work. And I noticed that you're a Taekwondo instructor. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, I've, I, um, I've been doing it for 35 years now. Um, started off when I was about 12 because I was being bullied at school. And um, I don't know how deep you want me to go on this before. I as deep as you want. Okay. Um, yeah, so I was being bullied at school when I was younger. And my mum took me to the local library to... Um, get a book on martial arts to decide which one I wanted to do. Hmm. And I came to the section on Taekwondo and it showed one guy kicking someone else in the face. And I'm like, oh, that looks cool. <laughs> and then the next, <laughs> the next page was like how to do a jumping spinning kick. And it's like, yeah, that's what I need in my life. <laughs> when I'm being bullied, that's what I want to be able to do. And went to our local sports center. And the week before a Taekwondo class had opened up the first one in our area and it just so happened it had started a week before. So it was kind of like fate for me. It was like, yeah, this is it. This is where I want to be. So did it yeah, 35 years later. Help you overcome, did it help you stand up against boys? It did. Um, strangely, the most common question I ever get is, uh, did you beat up the bullies? <laughs> <laughs> but um, no, it genuinely not. But it just kind of, it gave me that self-confidence. And I think it was the sort of, the victim um, body language I had before. And that kind of changed when you have someone kicking you around at training a couple of times a week, suddenly a bully hitting you is kind of like, well, you know, I get this anyway, so it makes no difference. So you kind of hold yourself a bit differently. And and then the bullying kind of just sort of faded away anyway, because they realize it's probably not worth the, uh, the risk to them. So. so what kept you going for it in so long? Like I have a lot of friends who picked up um, some form of martial arts as a kid. They probably did it for five to seven years and then they stopped i've noticed i guess you've gone on for a lot longer like what what is the part that keeps you motivated to i guess uh further your pursuits in that manner um well it really comes down to a, a sort of two two prong reasoning the first one is that it made such a fundamental difference in my life um that i want to keep giving that back to others so i teach a club now our club has a non-profit ethos so any money, any profits the club makes goes back into training trips or equipment or social events for the members, things like that. So hmm. I'm not doing it to earn any money. I've never taken a penny from Taekwondo, but I just want to kind of give back to the world through, because of what Taekwondo gave me. The other aspect to it for me is that I find learning very important. So I have a constant philosophy with me and my team that every day you should be learning something. If you spend a day and you haven't learned something new, then that was kind of a waste. You haven't made yourself any better than you were the day before. So Taekwondo, luckily, even all the way up to the level I'm at now, which is a seventh degree black belt, always has something else to learn. And and that kind of keeps driving me forward. There's always something new, something changing, some little detail that someone teaches you. And it's like, oh, wow, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, that's really good. So, Does that so, learning also apply to like other areas of your life as well on top of the martial arts? Definitely. So my background sort of for work is I'm a self-taught developer. I started learning to program when I was about 12, um, similar time actually, which is coincidental. Um, and we had a family friend that was a professional programmer. 
So I got a ZX Spectrum and he's like, oh, let me show you how to write programs for it. And then we spent sort of a couple of evenings and a weekend day doing this. And he got time to pick subjects at school in kind of the equivalent of high school. And one of the, the options obviously was computing. But in my mind, it was like, no, that's fun. I don't want to spend school time doing that because then my fun thing becomes boring. So I avoided that and did chemistry and all the other sciencey stuff. And again, it sort of it seemed every time it came to, do you want to study this? Do you want to work with this? It was like, no, I don't want to do that. This is my fun thing. And I left school and became an industrial chemist for pharmaceutical companies. And after a few years, I realized that I'm good at this, but I don't actually enjoy what I do. It's very boring and it's not something that interests me at all. And one of my bosses at the time happened to be complaining about the fact that the, the pharmaceutical company's internal IT department didn't have the time they needed to write a database for our department. And I was like, well, I can do that. That's easy. Um, and before we knew it, I sort of, I wrote this database and they're like, oh, can you write a database to do this? Yes. Yeah, so then, you know, I'm 10 databases in 10 various systems <laughs> all talking to each other. And it's like, actually, I, I love my day job now. This is what I want to be doing with my life. Hmm. So. Yeah, the, the self-learning, to bring it back to your question, the self-learning is definitely sort of important to me in all areas because it's kind of driven my career up to this point in terms of both the technical side and my current side as a co-founder and CTO is I haven't got a formal management education background. I don't have an MBA or anything. So it's kind of learning on my feet and every day is a, a self-improvement, self-learning um, journey for me. So. What were you building at the age of 12 with technology? Um, well, on the spectrum, it wasn't much. It was um, that's fine. Yeah, menu-driven menu games, that sort of thing. Okay. Um, I did start to have a play with assembly, uh, which was super hard in those days because there wasn't much documentation. It was kind of, here's the manual, and it explains what all of the commands are and what they do, but not much in terms of, this is how you chain them together to actually make software. So, But again, it was just kind of, that thirst for knowledge, when I found out that I could use basic and write all of these things, that was great. And then it was like, oh, but there's this other thing. If you learn assembly, it's even faster and this is even better. So it's like, okay, now I'm going to learn that one then. <laughs> so yeah, as soon as I find something I don't know, it's like it'll irritate me until I start to learn it. So what was the order of the things that you learn on a technical spectrum from call it like entry entry level programming basics into building a Kubernetes platform? That's a quite a broad spectrum. And I imagine it is, a lot yeah. of interesting uh, milestones along the way. Um, yes. Okay. So my first professional jobs after writing databases for the pharmaceutical company back in, when will it have been 1996, I was writing an event management system. So if you're having a big conference, registering people for the event, and that was my first experience with the World Wide Web. So it was Perl-based CGI script only. I think that was the only way we had in those days of of most people writing web integrated platforms. Um, so I did that for a few years. I then worked for a design agency. So that was very sort of varied work, um, by which point PHP had come around. Um, yes, yeah, so I was using PHP to build different websites for different clients. And it was agency work for me was very good because it was constantly different things for different customers. Mm -hmm. Nothing really went too deep. No customer ever wanted a massive platform. Um, but it kind of gave you the opportunity to to maybe sort of refine things. So, for example, in those days, it was very common to have your database access, 
um, parameter handling, everything all on a single page that you're loading. So one of the first things you started to then do was think, right, I want to write my own ORM, object relational mapping system. So you'd kind of write version one for one customer and then you port it across into the second one and go, well, it doesn't quite work, so now I'll tweak it. And then, you know, you're 50 customers in and your ORM system has become awesome and this is just, it's making your life so much easier. So um, it kind of came with the benefits of not necessarily writing a full framework. I would never say it was sort of a competitor to Rails, but it was kind of, you start to build up your own library of useful functions. Um, and that kind of investment in the tooling was kind of important to me as well. Mm. It's, it's not delivering business value, but it helps to um, make your day job better. So after PHP, I then started getting into Ruby on Rails and worked for um, a publisher, IPC Media in the UK, that's got about 90 magazines to its name and doing sports betting for the French National Lottery and the Israeli National Lottery. And these are all in Ruby on Rails. And that was kind of where developer happiness took a, a key part in my life. Coming from PHP, and I've done a bit of Java in the past as much as I hate it. Um, coming from PHP to Rails was like, this thing seems to be built around developer happiness. You know, we don't want to spend our time repeating writing the same code over and over again. So having some best practices already baked in is really helpful. I moved over to Ruby on Rails and that's what helped realize that developer happiness is, is really a key factor in, in enjoying a technology in a long career because I know so many people who are using other technologies who have then gone on to other things because it was repetitive, boring, um, whereas Rails is kind of, we'll do the easy bits for you and we'll let you worry about the challenging bits yeah. of your own business logic. And it was while I was doing that, that my co-founder, Mark Boost and I were talking and he was saying, cause at the time I was an IT contractor. So I don't know if you have that sort of market in the U S we have, we have those social market. We have actually a pretty good number of uh, contractors and agencies that like lend their like engineers to different firms. Yeah, exactly. So, but it was kind of like temporary work, you know, you could leave a week's notice and go on and do something else. Um, so my co-founder was like, what would you, what would you need in order to settle down permanently and join us full time? And I said, well, it'd have to be something interesting. Um, you know, I can do work anywhere and I can earn well as an IT contractor. So to make me sort of settle down and commit to one place long term, it'd have to be something interesting. And we started speaking about it and it's like, okay, so let's set up a company that's just going to do something interesting, you know, hosting based because that was his sort of, yeah. area of expertise he built up a bunch of hosting companies over the years um so we co-founded sivo with the idea that we're going to do something different and we started off with a particular sort of company ethos about being transparent with our community having our community sort of drive what direction they want the product or the service to go in but the problem was initially we were doing sort of infrastructure as a service raw compute um, virtual servers and it's such a crowded marketplace that there was really no opportunity to to break into it without spending billions on marketing and as it came across in probably 2018 maybe we came across kubernetes for hosting our own sivo.com website mm -hmm. 
And on my first day of playing with this thing, it was like, this is incredible. Why, why is there not a service using this? And we found, you know, GKE and equivalent platforms on um, Amazon and things. <laughs> and I've, I've really gone on. This is a long answer to your original question. It's okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we, we found these other platforms. And as a developer, it was often, I'm learning about Kubernetes and I want to launch a cluster to do, have, have a play with X thing, you know, ingress controls or whatever it is. And finding that you'd have to wait 20 to 30 minutes for a cluster to launch was just absolutely crippling. You know, I'd, I'd be reading something in a blog post and it's like, I want to play with that. Okay, now let me wait 20 minutes for a new cluster to launch. And then I can get back into what I was thinking about. So that kind of became the initial driving force behind the service we're building now is we can launch a Kubernetes cluster inside of two minutes, which means it's kind of, you see something interesting, you want to play with some technology, launch a cluster, go make yourself a cup of coffee, come back and your cluster's ready. So it's it's driven a lot of those use cases for customers where it's kind of use it in a CI CD pipeline, experimentation, learning. Um, we have a, a marketplace as well, Kubernetes application. So you can kind of, if you want to play with Argo CD or, you know, various ingress controllers or trap service meshes, things like that, you can launch it in one click mm -hmm. and say, Give me a cluster with this installed so I can start having a go. So, I noticed on your website you're doing price comparisons between uh, the, your Kubernetes hosted based solutions compared to like more traditional hosted solutions, call it like GCP or AWS. What, what makes you feel like these other companies don't want to go into that Kubernetes hosting space themselves, other than maybe loss of revenue? I mean, to be honest, the price comparisons we do are against other Kubernetes providers. Oh, I see. I see. Um, so it's not. It's trying to compare like for like as best we can. The problem we have as a user with other Kubernetes services is it feels like the pricing is either very complicated or comes with hidden things that you didn't know about. I see. So, for example, we also use Google Compute Platform for some services that we intentionally want off cluster. Yeah. And you can suddenly get a dramatic spike in your monthly bill through, you know, some change. And it was like, I had no indication this was going to come. So that's why we're sort of, our pricing comparison page is kind of demonstrating mm -hmm. that we keep things flat fee, we keep things transparent. You know, you know, based on your usage, what your bill will be in a month. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, with sort of generous egress data output um, capacity that we allow, you don't get a big surprise. If you suddenly have a busy month, you're not suddenly going to get a bill that's three times the size of last month's. You know, even if you go above those allowances, it's likely to be a conversation with us that, you know, you're going a bit far and above your things, but it's still not as a, you know, potentially a startup using our service. Here's a whacking great bill you weren't expecting to have. So. What are some of the things that enable you to offer the same solutions at a lower price and lower launching time? So what are the, the things that we do that allow that? Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the use of K3s is definitely an important part of that. So K3s is a fully CNCF certified compliant Kubernetes distribution. So anything you could run on Google Kubernetes or Azure Kubernetes, you can run on K3s. Hmm. Um, it has slight differences in terms of how you install it, which means that we can launch much faster. And yeah, so that's sort of one aspect of it. That's the sort of the speed of launch and 
why we chose K3s. The other sort of benefit to us in being able to reduce the costs is that we use the open compute platform hardware. So this is very dense um, compute capability that we've got. And we're working with a company in the UK that um, provides us these racks fully equipped, fully set up. So we can go from delivery of the hardware into a data center to that region being up and running in probably about an hour, including time to plug in all the cables. Hmm. So it's a great um, driver for us in terms of cost due to the density and speed of rollout. And going back a step in time, how did you go from having the idea to I'm ready to get started and I want to like leave these contracting roles and do something permanent and start SIVO? Like, what was that transition like, either mentally or financially? I think mentally is probably the hardest challenge. Okay. Because as a contractor, you tend to, and maybe I'm speaking for people um, unfairly, but as a contractor, you tend to sort of feel you both, you're a considered expert because you're being brought in at high money to help solve problems. Um, but also with that, there's kind of a, um, a disconnect. So you'll advise the client, I think this is the best way of doing it for X, Y, Z reason. And if they choose to say, no, we're going to go another way. As a contractor, your reaction is often, okay, I've given you the best advice I can. You don't want to take it. Don't take it. Right. As a co-founder of a company, it's more my role to say, I've advised that X, Y, Z is the best solution. You're saying you don't want to, but we need to talk about why now, because you know this decision could affect us for the next five years or cause a massive rewrite further down the road. I'm not saying I'm right, but let's have this conversation rather than just, I'm proposing X, it gets shot down, and then you back off and say, okay, fine, we'll do it your way. So it's kind of that, that switching mentality from expert advice giver to shared responsibility, collaborative working, um, you know, maybe sort of advocate for a, a technology decision internally. Was it difficult to learn that skill of having, I guess, more potentially contentious conversations or more like conversations where people disagree and having to like work through it versus just like walking away from it as a contractor might have the option to? Definitely. Um, I mean, I was lucky that sort of earlier on in my career, I had got to sort of senior levels in um, being a permanent member of staff before switching into IT contracting. So it kind of, it wasn't my first experience of doing this. Um, that said, as I'm a techie, I probably am more fact-driven than maybe some of my sort of peers in other executive roles. So I come with a suggestion that has you know, these benefits and it takes care of these risks. If someone else can tell me, here's a better solution and this is why, then my brain will completely accept that. And it's like, okay, yeah, you're right. That's that's fine. And if they can't suggest why it's better, then it's easy for my brain to say, no, this is why my recommendation goes. So I'm kind of, um, how's, how's the way of phrasing it? Strong opinions weekly held. So it's kind of, I have a strong opinion on what the best thing is, but I'm easily open to change if you can tell me otherwise. Um, and one of the key things as well is, and particularly sort of being a technology leader within a company is, accepting you don't know everything. So I have a team of SREs that knows Kubernetes way better than I ever will. So I kind of have to rely on them to give me their best advice. So mm. I can kind of 
throw a suggestion out um, for it to be sort of shot down by them of this isn't going to work for these reasons, but this is the way we can do it. Um, but I always tend to try and get my team to don't come with a problem, come with a suggested solution to the problem. So that's the way I try to sort of lead as well is if I'm going to suggest a, a problem, I'm also going to tell you a solution. It may not be the right one, but it's a starter for 10 and then we can discuss yeah. and, and go from there and define the problem space further. So something I've noticed about from talking to a lot of CTOs is that they, they generally also have a similar philosophy of strong opinions loosely held, especially when it's easy to draw that clear cost-benefit analysis. I think the, the challenges I've seen arise in the past when it, it's not so much a technical challenge, but a like financial or business challenge that forces engineering to shift timelines. Is that something you've like faced within Sivo where like you recognize there's a better long-term solution, but you had to go for a better midterm solution first for the sake of the business. And <laughs> how often does that happen? And how do you go through those conversations? Yeah. So strangely, this is, this has felt like it's happened a couple of times and it's needed some, yeah, uncomfortable conversations with my CEO, but he's very supportive. So the original version of our API service for Sivo was written in Go. And this is when we were really, really small. There was, you know, a handful of us. And at the time, my decision was, and there wasn't anyone really with a counterpoint, was that Go is faster, much more lightweight. It's therefore a better technology choice for the API. But after about a year of doing this, I realized that I'm the only person that knows Go in the company. So if I want to go away on holiday, if I want to have Christmas Day off and there's something goes wrong with the service, I'm the one that has to fix it. So by this point, we'd built up maybe two or three Rails developers in the company. So I went to the CEO and said, yep, we have a perfectly working API, but we're now going to replace it with a version written on Ruby and Rails because it's a better technology choice for the team. Yeah. So rather than a better pure technology choice, it's a team fit. Hmm. So he agreed with that, and we then rewrote it into Ruby on Rails. And then fast forward three years later, and it just so happens because our new platform is entirely based on Kubernetes, and we have Kubernetes operators and things like this running that are all written in Go, we actually have more Go developers on the staff now than we do Rails. So now we're back to Go is the better technology choice and it's the better team fit. So now <laughs> we've just rewritten again back into Go. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, and it's kind of the first time it happened, it was, I guess, embarrassing is probably the right word because it feels like I made a mistake. I did the wrong thing. And... I've kind of come to terms with that over the years that it's like not I did the wrong thing. It's I made the best decision I could at that time with yeah. the information available. It turned out to be wrong. So we changed it and we did the right thing. And then later on, it again, wasn't the right thing at this time with the information available. So we changed it again and there's nothing wrong with that. So you can't keep doing it. You can't keep spending cycles and cycles rewriting things. But <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, it's okay to, to make a decision and run with it if it's the right thing at the time. Hmm. There's kind of, that can be a mental challenge feeling that like you did the wrong thing. You gave the wrong advice, but you know, if you look back on it with hindsight, would you do the same thing again in that situation? And the answer was yes, I would have done exactly the same thing. So yeah, the decision stands. So. Do you remember how much the infrastructure costs went down when you switched the API from rails to go? Is, is that something you, like a benefit you noticed? And the answer to that is no, okay. because we, we've been growing at the same time. So initially the switch from go to rails, yeah. um, we were growing. So it was kind of, we need more servers. We need more servers. And it was just kind of, it happens. 
the rewrite back to go we're literally just completing at the moment so that's okay. due to go live in about a week or so so um yeah we probably can track how many pods we currently run now and how many pods we run after it might actually be an interesting metric i mean we've we've looked at sort of individual response times for our api queries and they're going down incredibly so uh, we're looking at sort of some of our api requests are taking 150 200 milliseconds and they're going down to a handful like five or ten milliseconds so yeah it should be a big difference and therefore a big reduction in cost and when I was at Uber, there was a point where there was like an internal mandate where they wanted everything, every old technology, every interpreted language to be translated into a compiled one, like either Java or Go. Significant mm -hmm. infrastructure savings as well as like performance improvements. So I just figured I'd throw that question out there. Yeah, I mean, the interesting thing has always been for me, though, is about there are benefits to that. Yeah. You know, the cost saving is real. But for most companies, are you operating at a scale where that cost saving is offset enough against the developer time spent right so for example when we had rails developers with very little go resource it, and we if we decided at that point to write the api in go the guys would be slow so slow and so unproductive it wouldn't matter how much we're saving because it's, right. <laughs> it's much true. more in staff cost um now with the team balance being different it should be different but yeah that's that's another aspect to consider though it's often not just the bottom line of how much is this costing us to host? But is this requiring more effort from the tech team to to build, enhance? So I have a lot of uh, discussions with my business partner over secure <laughs> technology versus older technologies with larger networks. And it's like always one of those things that like, it's actually unclear which is superior and there's no universal answer. And I think one of the common scenarios I think about nowadays, like the Ethereum platform is, I think has the largest network effect out of all the ones that have smart contracts, but there are significant, there's, technically better ones in terms of like transfer time and as well as like costs, but will adoption happen? I don't know. So it's always cool to see how they play out in reality. Yeah. The whole crypto thing feels like a big gamble for me. I'm, oh, yeah, I'm for sure. blessedly staying away from that. Yeah. So yeah. Where, where do you feel like the industry is currently lacking as it relates to um, like hosting solutions? Um, I don't know. I feel like I've got kind of um, a bee in my bonnet about having a decent platform as a service solution on top of um, Kubernetes. Hmm. I think we'll reach the point in the future where Kubernetes is just sort of the de facto standard. Like most of the world hosts on Linux, most of the world at one point hosted on Apache. There's going to become a point where most things are hosted on Kubernetes just because it's there and it's um, you know full featured and everywhere. Hmm. So I think that layer will kind of go away and be expected. So it then comes back to the original um, 10 factor application approach and the, the sort of, who was the company doing it? There was a company, my brain's gone now, um, doing a platform as a service, not Heroku, they were doing sort of self-hosted cloud foundry. Yeah, yeah. Where the principle is sort of, I've written this application, I want it on the internet, but I don't care how you do that. Here's my code, you run it. Um, I don't want to deal with sort of the internals and how many servers and stuff like that. Kind of maybe the serverless dream, but it always feels like service uh, serverless is a benefit to microservices than full-blown applications, monolithic applications. Hmm. So that's kind of a, a dream I've got of the future. And, and it's something that we've often talked about writing at Sevo, hmm. um, doing it as a platform, as a service where you can 
Git push your code up to our platform or a platform, have it deployed, have it run, have it automatically scale. If you decide you want to then tinker with it more, then you can export the Kubernetes resources and play with it just as a regular Kubernetes application. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of maybe a bridging step into for developers that don't yet know Kubernetes, here's a way of getting your code into Kubernetes, and then you can play with it and experiment and figure out how all these things work. So how that's large probably the biggest thing I'd say. How large is your team currently? Um, sorry, sorry, engineering team. Yeah, okay. So there is currently about 13, 14? Okay. 14, I think. How did um, but yeah, split between SREs, Rails developers, Go developers. Um, and we're kind of, we're just splitting out into a new team called the research and development team that's going to be doing more experimental things. How did it go from being a technical leader of, I guess, being the co-founder and maybe the first person to write the initial version to being a leader of people who do technical development? That's an ongoing journey. Okay. Um, you learned. What have I learned? Oh, wow. Okay. So one of the key things for me has always been, and it's kind of, because I was a self-taught developer, is I don't even know what I don't know. So... I'm learning things that something comes up, I'm learning, I need to know about that. Um, and it's a major contributor, I think, particularly for techies, for imposter syndrome, that you feel like you don't justify your place in this mm. thing, whatever the thing is, because there's so much out there where other people know it better than you. Um, and I think there's there's been a couple of good books that have sort of helped fill in some of the gaps um, on a leadership side and a technical side. Um, so yeah, that's been kind of the journey of kind of switching from techie hands in the code to running teams that are doing this thing. And probably the big learnings for me is more about, um, communication styles and, um, delegation is a big challenge. I've always found delegation a big challenge. And I, I saw this in an article recently where it's, You've thought about delegating a given task, but in your back of your mind, there's a little voice that says, I could do this quicker myself than I probably could explain it to the person. <laughs> I could probably do it better than they're going to do it. Just get it, just get it done. It's, it's something else for your plate. Don't worry about it. And that's been a constant challenge, I would say. There's so many times because, because I wrote the first version of the API service, I wrote the first version of the website, where it's like, I know exactly where I need to plug this feature mm -hmm. in. And it will take me longer to tell you this than it will just for me to go and write the code. But there are there are benefits to delegating correctly, such as helping upskill the team, freeing up my time to um, focus on better uses of my time. So, you know, there are certainly things that I can do that the rest of my team can't. So rather than me try and take everything on and leave those guys to do little bits, it frees me up to do more of that sort of deeper thinking and, and future work. You mentioned um, books. What are some of your like favorite books on both of the leadership as well as like technical side of of uh, leadership? Okay, um, so leadership wise, I would probably say my two favorite books are the Personal MBA. Hmm. I think it's by Joshua Kaufman, but I'm not 100 percent sure. 
Um, and that's really good at sort of explaining. They went through all of the textbooks for a bunch of different MBA courses, distilled it down into forms that us mere mortals can understand and kind of then bring you up to speed with the sort of level of knowledge you'd have from an MBA if you properly studied it. So at least at sort of a, a high level, you're aware of these things. And if you now want to delve in deeper, you can. Mm-hmm. Um, another good one that I've been reading recently is Surrounded by Idiots. And that's kind of really helped shape my viewpoint on both sort of self-analysis and acceptance of differences. So are you aware of this book? I have not, but I really like the title. Like the title yeah, alone so, makes me want to read the book. <laughs> exactly. So to, to sort of summarize the the initial reasoning for the book is it's uh, it's an old guy who runs a company and he's talking with a friend and he, he says to his friend, I'm surrounded by idiots. Every time I ask them to do something or every time they're telling me something, I'm like, why are you telling me this? This is basic or, you know, I've already told you how to do this. Why are you not doing it properly? I'm surrounded by idiots. I need to fire everyone and just hire new, <laughs> new people. And his friend then said to him that it's like, there's four main colors of people. So sort of blue, yellow, green, red. And everyone will fit mostly into one of those colors. There may be a little bit right, of right. other color influences. And sort of how one color will speak to another color will affect what results you get out of them. Mm. So kind of, if you're like, I'm a blue, which is a very sort of strongly analytical fact driven sort of approach. A lot if of engineers are like, blues. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but if I'm speaking to my boss, who's more of a sort of red character, um, I need to approach things in a very different way to if I'm speaking to someone else who's a blue. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of learning how to communicate between people differently, depending on what they're like, as well as accepting I am this way. I now know I am this way and I'm okay with that. That's kind of the, the hard bit. It's not, mm-hmm. I've just run this exercise actually today with a few of my teams. I've given them sets of words, which ones you most strongly identify with. And at the end of it kind of come out with a rough color for each person. And a couple of them have today have said, I'm a blue, I'm a green, whatever. Is this bad? And it's like, none of the colors are bad. This isn't about judging you. This is just about knowing who you are so that I can help you better. Mm. Um, so it's kind of a very interesting book in, in that sort of sense. Was that a company-wide exercise? Um, I'm doing it within my team only. Okay. So I've, I've started this week going through all of my team and asking these these word choices. And I'm quite sure they all come off the call thinking I'm crazy, but it's happening. <laughs> uh, I guess I'll, I'll have to message you in the future to see how that plays out in, in the long term. But I, I've, I really like that idea. And shoot, I'm already like toying with the idea in my head. It's like, oh, shoot, I should do that within my company and see how it plays out. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the other thing as well that's helped a lot recently, and it kind of follows in the same vein, is I produced a personal user manual. So this is something a lot of business leaders sort of advocate is explain about your personality, what your personal values are, how you communicate best, mm-hmm. things like this. And it kind of helps people to be able to work with you better. So, you know, without naming any names, I was, I was having a potential personal, personal conflict with one of my team where he seemed to be taking things that I was saying much harsher than I was intending them. Mm-hmm. And he was saying this and I'm like, I don't get it because I wasn't being mean or nasty or anything. I was just, from my point of view, factual. Yeah. So because of my blue <laughs> mindset, I'm just telling you the facts. I'm not, sugarcoating it but i'm also not having a go at you this isn't anything personal to you this is just 
the way I'm seeing the facts. Hmm. So then I produced um, sort of a user manual for Andy Jeffries with sort of this explanation in it and sent it over to the whole team and said, you can all have a read or ignore it, do what you want, but it's kind of here if you want it. How long is it? And yeah, the, the user manual. Yeah. Um, I've actually got it in front of me. It's two pages and a little bit. Okay. Um, so yeah, trying to be fairly brief and quick and easy to read. Okay. That makes and sense. Yeah. And the team member in question after sort of said, this is so helpful because now I see when you're saying these things, this is what you're doing and it's mm. not, it's not aimed at me. It's right, saying, right. No, it wasn't. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it was originally, the idea was originally founded by a guy called Ertz, Ertz Holzer. U-R-S is his first name, H-O-L-Z-L-E, and it's a personal user manual is what they refer to it as. Hmm. But it's a very useful tool to sort of explain to your team, and if you can get your team to get on board with the idea and do it as well, is kind of understanding how everyone's different and what their values are. So as part of my self-introspection, I've realized that one of my key values is information. So, you know, more money is always nice, I've already got a fairly high title that doesn't really um, interest me any need further. I don't need my CEO to tell me I'm doing a good job. You know, if I'm doing a bad job, he'll sack me. So kind of, <laughs> I don't need the reassurance of, well done, you're doing the, the right thing. I'm okay with that. What I need is information. So if he's making a decision or having a thought process, tell me early in the process. Hmm. You know, if I hear from someone else that this thing's being discussed or happening, then it grates on my personality. I'm like, oh, why am I not being told about this? And then I feel excluded and then it sort of causes more issues. So when I came to terms with this isn't a bad thing, this is just who you are and the way your brain works, communicating that with people is like, okay, well, that's fine. So if I'm having any problem, I'll just tell you early. It's like, yeah, exactly. And then I feel valued and and the relationship goes much smoother. So is there a template for this document or is it something you have to like compose in a very freeform manner? Um, no, there's, there's definitely sort of examples out there and some blog posts. Hmm. Um, I can send you some links after this, including show notes, if you have show notes. Okay. Yeah. We're working on making our show notes a little more robust. So that'll, that'll be a nice start. Cool. Yeah. No, no problem. I'll do that. So what is, how is your day to day different now than when you first started? Like, what does it look like and how is it different from, I guess, the earlier days in the company? Um, so I guess the real difference is, you know, we're growing at a big pace. So we started off with some servers in, in our offices actually has a, a proper data center on the ground floor. So um, owned by one of our sister companies. So we kind of have put servers into there and this was our production rack. And we've now kind of grown to having racks in Frankfurt, Germany, New York, London. And we've got another one that was due this year but due to the chip shortage we're kind of i think running a little bit behind with that hmm. so it's kind of gone from this server has gone down or this service has gone down you know go downstairs and give it a kick so now it's we've got teams constantly monitoring all different statistics from every region things have to kind of be more self-healing if there's a problem um so probably that's the biggest difference that it's kind of you have to try and keep your finger much more on the pulse when you're running things at larger and larger scales. Um, mm. So yeah, observability and communication is key. What are some of the principles you think about when it comes to like leading people on top of what you've already shared? 
uh, on top of like learning yourself and making that known to your to your staff. What do you think about what does it mean to be a good leader in your mind? Either something you're working towards or an area that you already feel like you're strong in. Yeah. Um, so one of the key sort of the key um, important concepts in our company is about open and transparency. So that's kind of number one for us is that if we're thinking about doing something, we'll talk it through with the team. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the sort of the self-analysis side is important. Communication is important. Um, we make sure people know their value. So that's another aspect that's been key for us is that when we think someone's doing a good job, we'll proactively give them a pay rise. Hmm. I've worked at so many companies in the past where it's you have to approach your boss. I think I've justified a pay rise. Well, budgets are tight. And, you know, <laughs> the, the fight backwards and forwards. Yeah, you've, you've been there, I'm sure. It's like, yeah. It's a negotiation over, I want more money, please. I'm doing a really good job. And it will cost you another $20,000 if I leave and you have to hire someone to replace me. <laughs> you know, but a lot of companies don't sort of see this side of it. So, you know, it's not that we'll necessarily um, always bow down if someone says to us they want to rise. But we like to try and recognize people and say, you, you know, you're doing a really good job. Um, you know, there's a little bit more cash in the budget at the moment you know we want to just make sure you're well taken care of so yeah okay um but it's kind of also another key thing for us um is about making sure we've got the right person in the right role so we have a a structure of what teams we've got and what which people are working where but then over time we may find that actually this person they're doing a good job. It's not a let's get rid of them, but they'd be really good if we put them over here. Um, so kind of moving people to where fits them best. Mm. So um, we're having a few changes in the team um, that we're sort of discussing today. So, and from the conversations I've had, these these team members are very happy to be put in a place because it's kind of, we've recognized that their skills lie in this direction they've obviously been aware of this but never thought i could join that team because i'm hired into this team and it's like no for us you'd be a better fit over there so we'd get better work out of you you'd be happier because you're doing the thing you want to do so why would we keep you in a job you don't want to be doing as much as you'd like to do this one so yeah that's that's working well for us as well so as you know I mean, oh go ahead i didn't mean to interrupt that's okay so um yeah so the other thing is i mean i'm as i said Self-learning is very important to us and continual improvement. So I'm doing a monthly coaching session with a group of other executives um, and a professional coach. Hmm. So that's kind of helping each month to highlight things that I didn't know I didn't know. Um, so that's been a, a great process this year. And in fact, that book recommendation, Surrounded by Idiots, came from that group. So, yeah, that's something else I would recommend. Find a group of like-minded individuals and people at the same level to kind of form a support network and help each other out. How'd you find that group? Um, it was, I was lucky. The, I was, I was thinking I need to, you know, the company's kind of grown and I've, I've been through this. I'm going to have to digress a little bit to explain. Um, so I've been through kind of the, the stages of the CTO that a lot of people go through where you're a startup CTO and you're literally just hands-on writing the code and it's a CTO title, not much else. 
through the sort of startup phase where you're starting to get some of the team and you're trying to put in place things for them, but you're still majority hands-on. And I'm kind of now progressing into the scale-up CTO where it's much less hands-on encoding, uh, more team management and future vision, things like that. So it's kind of that, that growth journey. And I spoke to my boss about um, a year ago and and it was like, I think I need some sort of help here. I don't know. I know where I'm at. I know where I need to be, but I, I don't know what I'm missing to get there. And it just so happened then I had a guy reach out to me on LinkedIn who runs a company doing this, this exact thing. Um, and it was like, I had a conversation about this with my CEO two days ago. So you literally messaged me out of the blue at just the right time. And this is perfect. So um, I've also been looking recently. There's some some sort of LinkedIn groups um, for CTO sort of peer group sort of thing. Mm. So um, LinkedIn is probably a good place to try and find a group of, of similar people. Okay. Do you use Twitter as much or is it more of a LinkedIn thing? Um, I use Twitter, but I haven't managed to find, um, probably because they're only just launching the communities mm. thing. Um, I haven't sort of found any decent way of networking with other CTOs and, and forming that connection because it's kind of, it's all well and good knowing that I know this CTO in this other company, but do I know him well enough to just drop him a message saying, I'm having this weird problem that I'm not getting the best out of this mm -hmm. team. Um, yeah. What do you think? So gotcha. sort of, it's a different level of relationship to just reaching out over Twitter and saying, can I have some advice on this rather than, you know, Hey Katie, Hey Jeff, you know, what do you think about this? Am I doing something daft? Um, and you need that kind of relationship, that bond to be able to both ask those questions that you may feel embarrassed to ask mm. because it kind of feels like when you reach the executive level, you're expected to know the answers. Um, and if you don't, it can be a, a tough challenge to say, yeah, I don't know here. This isn't working, but I don't know why. Um, but then also it's difficult if someone asks you sometimes to be honest it's too easy to say oh no you're doing the right thing don't worry keep going rather than you know when i've been in this situation that hasn't worked so i would rip out what you're doing right now and think about something like this so it's kind of you need that two-way bond and friendship i guess to say be honest with each other without judgment are these sorts of groups things that help you i guess grow and overcome things like imposter syndrome is that like something that's really helped you yeah definitely um you know there's there's lots of people that are sort of very confident ctos that have maybe you know backgrounds in business management and degrees in this um you know they've had great mentors in the past and they're already really experienced but it feels like there's a whole bunch of executives that have kind of grown into the role without really getting that support and education um so yeah that's sort of the peer group way of learning is, is definitely important. Hmm. Okay. Well, I have one last question for you. Um, what's something you've been learning recently that you wish you learned a long time ago? Um, that's a good question. Um, yeah, I mean, aside from the communication stuff we've discussed, only probably Kubernetes. I wish I'd got in right at the ground floor of Kubernetes. <laughs> um, you know, we, we were fairly early in the usage, but it felt like there was already lots of people out there that knew lots of things about it. And mm. um, and I guess it would have been cool to be there sort of earlier and helping to shape some of that stuff, knowing how big mm. it's 
already got and then will get much bigger so um but yeah no constantly learning things so it's kind of there'll always be things where it's i learned something i think oh i wish i'd known that a while ago um yeah. okay well uh thank you for your time andy i'd love to give you the stage now for people who want to follow you or your company's journey along what's the best way for them to do so sure so to follow sevo um on twitter or youtube we're sevo cloud on those platforms um the website is sevo.com and yeah you can come along sign up and have a play with the managed k3 service and i personally am on twitter as andy jeffries you're welcome to follow me and yeah interact send me messages or you know tag me in things um you know if you're a, a cto maybe a cto in a startup and you're trying to get to the scale upside and you want to form this peer group reach out to me and we can try and sort of put something together sounds good well thanks again for joining us on the show you're very welcome thanks for having me